Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Parallel Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Today's guest is Kevin Hoffman. He has an incredible story about where he comes from in a time and a place and some really scary moments, it sounds like. So, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. So, my story begins in 1967 in Detroit. My white mother had a relationship with the black man that she worked with. Um, And they were both happily married just to two different people. So I am the result of an affair between two co-workers. Uh, For obvious reasons, my mother's white husband insisted that she give me up for adoption. I was placed immediately in foster care, uh, stayed in foster care for about three months, and then was adopted by a white minister, his wife, and they have three biological children. So I'm the youngest in that family. Um, they lived in a suburb of Detroit. My father was a Lutheran minister. Um, he was an associate pastor uh, at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Dearborn, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. Uh, Dearborn was interesting where back in the late 60s and 70s, they were considered, it's called a closed community, which means that people of color weren't welcomed in that community. And so I, like I said, Came to that community at three months old. Then at about 11 months old, we woke up to a cross burning in our front yard. Uh, We stayed in that community for another two years. And then my parents decided this community was going to change us before we changed it. And my father moved. uh, Pat took a call to pastor a church in Detroit, uh, Detroit's northwest side. And at that time, the congregation that he served was 50% black, 50% white. And, oh, and the parsonage we lived in, the home that we lived in was in a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I had constant contact with people that looked like me, which for me was life-changing. Yeah, it just, it was great to be a part of that. And so my parents understood they didn't know black culture, but they understood they could put me close enough to it so that I would learn as best I could. And I did. I learned a lot about that. And I always tell when I speak, you know, I say we just all are looking for our tribe. And, yeah, I knew immediately I had found, you know, my tribe or my clan. Uh, How scary was that to wake up to a burning cross in your yard? I'm sure it was terrifying for my mother because. We had this big plant, plant, we had a nice house in Dearborn. It was a big plantation style porch that wrapped around the house. And when my mother heard voices in the front yard and she sprung out of bed, this was in the middle of the night and she didn't have her glasses on. So when she looked down and onto the front yard, all she could see was fire and she didn't know where it was coming from. And she assumed the house was on fire. So when she runs downstairs and looks out the window, then she saw it was a cross. Um, So, yeah, it was terrifying for them, I'm sure. I mean, that was, and you have to, context is so important when we talk about race. So you also, in history, and you have to understand, that was in 1968. 
not long, not too long after Martin Luther King was killed and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. So, yeah, it was they had a whole lot to be afraid of. I mean, it could have gone really bad really quickly. Back when I was seven, I want to say we lived in the backwoods of Tennessee as a young kid. And even there, I I had some real hard questions to answer from people because I looked a little bit different than them. People weren't always kind with the way they asked questions, yeah. especially in that time frame, because we're in 2020 right now. It's, that was a lot of years ago, but it wasn't so much that you would expect that big of a, of a cultural shift. Mm-hmm. In 40 years, you wouldn't expect them to, to go from where we are today to that kind of incredible racial tension where people are willing to show up at, at someone's house and throw a fit because you said you were 11 months old at the time. Yes. What was it like for you? Growing up, um, you said you were three when you moved. I guess, do you remember anything? That's the most important thing, I think, to start with. Do you remember anything from that town? Yeah, I remember playing on that porch. We used to play. We had a dog, a big collie, and uh, you could crawl up under the porch and play. That's I remember that. Um, I've gone back to that church since then, and that seemed familiar. Like, the church hasn't changed much. Um, yeah, and that... What I didn't share was the two years after the cross burning then became this process of the church trying to fire my father because he had brought this child of color into the church. Um, And so, yeah, so it was interesting. I don't remember all this, but my parents had shared with me that, yeah, the women, I would go into the nursery while they were in church because I was just a little baby. And then the women in the nursery would refer to me as the snotty nosed black kid. Um, and then they would constantly come up to my mother and they wanted to know, and I was, like I said, we left there when I was three years old, but my mom said constantly, the women in the church would come up to her and ask her who they thought I was going to grow up and date. And I think they were fearful that, you know, I'd stay in that community and grow up and date one of their daughters. Our daughter and I, we were speaking and she's 13 and she's in middle school and, you know, has lots of friends and this and that. And she had questions for me. She said, mom, you know, our daughter, she's mixed. And she said, you know, is it okay? You know, who am I supposed to date? Am I supposed to date a white boy? Mm -hmm. Am I supposed to date a black boy? Or am I supposed to date a mixed boy? Mm -hmm. And so still, even in 2020, those questions are alive and well, and we have to figure out ways to answer them for our children. You know, and my answer to my daughter was, is I want you to pick the person that treats you the way that you should be treated. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And I, I would say not much has changed since I came along. I mean, I, I was born two weeks after the riots in Detroit and the riots began because the black community had finally had enough of the horrible treatment by the predominantly white police force. About every 20 years, we go through that. So it happened in 1993 with Rodney King. You saw it with Ferguson. And so things have gotten better in some sense. But I got to tell you, we haven't made the changes we should have in the 53 years I've been around. This year has been a tough year with everything going on. And it's really hard as a person of color in this country not to feel like an unwelcome guest. 
And so we've got to get a handle on this. I will say that I've never been as encouraged as I am now because of some of the responses that we've gotten from some of the horrible things that have happened, horrible things that have happened this year. So you have people coming out and speaking out against things in ways they haven't, which I'm encouraged. And I hope that we catch up because we should be a whole lot further ahead. I suspect that our children's generation will take the largest leap forward when it comes to race relations between kids, because I saw my son, my oldest son, um, he had friends who were of all kinds of different backgrounds and none of them seemed to notice that they didn't look like each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I watch, um, my 14 year old son and they kind of had the same thing going on. Right. You know, my, my son, he's, he's mixed, but he's, he's a little bit on the darker complexion side. His best friend lives about three blocks over the road down here and he's a white kid, but he's also got kids that are friends that are, you know, every shade of black mixed and white and none of them really seem to care a whole heck of a lot. So I'm really encouraged when I see that in our kids. My son used to say this, well, we don't deal with the same stuff you guys did. And then he got older and Facebook and social media really doesn't help any of that because now I only had to deal with two or three horrible guys in school. Now kids today have to deal with hundreds and thousands of kids who feel very comfortable saying things across the internet and they're horrible things that they're saying to each other that, that fortunately we were kind of shielded from because we didn't have to turn on, we didn't have computers, but to turn on something and to hear that all the time. Um, yeah. And, and I work in schools and I've done this for several years and I was actually shocked when I went into schools because Man, in the halls and in between classes, kids say some horrible things still. Words that I thought had no longer were no longer used. Wow, they say them very freely. Oh yeah, I will agree there. You know, I actually one of the guys I worked with, I had a conversation with him just the other day, and yeah, he's a white guy, and he says to me, you know, that, that he doesn't really think there's a whole lot of racism left in America. And I about choked. <laughs> As, as I was like, hang on just a second, dude. Hang on, man. But, you know, it's those conversations where I'm, I have a moment to say, hey, look, dude, you don't think there's a lot of racism left in America because you don't experience it. Right. You've never experienced it. Right. You know, I right. shared a few examples of, from our own life. You know, we've had a couple moments. And, and I get looks occasionally, you know, because as a foster family, we take in whoever shows up. Right, right. You know, are really the only restrictions we put on kids is age because there's there's an age group that works best for us that we are most you know adept at dealing with. So if you give me a, a 17 year old kid, you're probably not going to get my best my best uh, right, right, effort right. out of that. Yeah. But if you hand me a, a two year old, three year old, and a couple Hot Wheels, buddy, we're gonna have a good time. We'll get along just fine. And you know, especially you know, you give me a two-year-old, three-year-old with trauma and all that. Man, we've dealt with that so much that that's where we. That's kind of our, our wheelhouse. So we we restrict down to to kind of that world. But as far as race, eh, not a thing for us. And we haven't had a lot of issues. We've seen some, but we haven't had a lot of issues. So we've been pretty fortunate. But it's it's there. We found it. You know, we, we took some kids up to a small town. Um, one young dude had to go see his, his mom uh, in, in the Women's State Correctional Facility. And we found out that that particular town is still a sundown town. Oh, wow. Really? Everything to find out. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's one of those left in the news, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and and we had some we had some interesting interactions up there. It took us a you know a little bit to to get comfortably out of that town because we had chosen to stop and eat at the little diner there, which really ruffled some feathers apparently. Mm-hmm. But I. I'm not going to play their game. I'm just going to do my thing. And we went on. But you know, the, the thing is, is when you're talking about foster care, when you're talking about kids, man, this stuff is, it's just the most ridiculous part of the ridiculousness of racism. When you're getting mad at a, at a baby, at an infant, at a kid, at a two year old, because of the color of their skin. I mean, it's stupid to think that about another human being. I get it. But how much, I mean, there's a lot of men, regardless of the color of their skin, that are folks I just don't want to hang out with because they're they're not awesome people. Right. But kids, man, like th- these kids need help. Yeah. So, you know, when we came into it, we were really intentional about making sure what we wouldn't wouldn't think about accepting and race was never an issue for us. But for some people it is, and I get it. And I get it. And if it is, if it's a problem with you or it's a problem with your family, maybe you shouldn't, you know, take kids of a different race. Right. And I'm okay with that thought as well. But what was it about your family that you were adopted into that said, Hey, this is what we want to do. And they did this in 1967 when like, when stuff was a little bit crazier than it is today, what was it about your family that, that made them decide that was a time and place for them to step into something that was the reason to help a kid and they didn't care about a real and present danger that showed up. Well, I don't think they understood the magnitude of what they were getting into, which was part of it. Um, I think the other part was too. my parents had had three children. Their plan was always to have four. My mother's last pregnancy was very hard on her physically. And so they decided to adopt. Now, back then, they only qualified because my mother could physically have children, they only qualified for certain individuals. And so they were only presented with medically fragile children or uh, children of color. And I think part of it was my parents didn't have an issue with race. My parents had actually been out in the community before I came along and they were picketing and protesting unfair housing laws. They were protesting the laws or the kind of mentality that Dearborn had, which was, we want to keep our community nice and white. And so my parents were very vocal about, you know, kind of breaking down those color barriers. And that was even before I came along. So they understood race to an extent and they understood inequality. So I think that's why they were open to adopting a child of color. And I think like a lot of families, part of what figured into that was desperation just to get another child. Some some families get to the point where that process can be so long that you're just like, eventually you're just like, okay, fine, just give me any kid. I just want to raise a child. And so I think some of that played into it. And I'll tell you, they didn't understand the depth of what they were getting into. Um, and it probably took them the first two or three years to finally say, man, we got to make a shift and we got to do it. Not only for our family, but specifically for this one child in the family. And we've got to move 
to a friendlier and safer environment. So that they did, yeah, in the late, you know, in 1970, um, decades ahead of their time to make that decision. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We need your support. Could you do us a favor and share this episode with a friend or family member, maybe a coworker, anybody who might be interested in foster care and adoption? If you have the means to support us monetarily, that would be great too. The sole sponsor of the show is a guy that looks a lot like me. And I could use a little bit of help if you haven't. Just a few dollars. Five dollars a month would be amazing. If you haven't and you'd like to donate, go over to patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Otherwise, the content's always going to remain free, and we do appreciate anything you have to give. And you'll see our episodes showing up every Tuesday morning on your podcast player, or check us out at fostercarenation.com. Now back to the show with Kevin Hoffman. Well, I've got to say now, you, you said you're from Detroit, and we're from the St. Louis area. My re- regular nine-to-five job puts me in uh, in downtown St. Louis and all the neighborhoods that you probably don't want to visit um, on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, a couple of those neighborhoods that are just downright dangerous to be in. But I know that in a lot of those communities, there are some people, just like the white communities, that have a lot of racism towards the white folks. And some of it, not going to say it's undeserved. Because, I mean, let's be honest, there's some some white people who've done some horrible things, not only over history, but in recent past. And so there's some of that is there as well. Did you guys experience any any of that when you're growing up in a, in a blacker community that that was maybe less friendly to a white couple moving in with with some different kids? Yeah, I mean, my mom always said we had a tough time finding a place where we could all be comfortable. Um, and so, yeah, my brothers were the minorities in those neighborhoods. And so, yeah, my one brother, I remember he got chased home a couple times. Um, and it was, I write about this in the book and quite honestly, it's when you put a whole lot of people in a short area and then limit their resources, it's no wonder that they're going to start going after each other that's it scientists say every organism will do that when you put when you cut off their area and give them limited resources they will climb over each other to survive that's what i walked away from with that neighborhood thankfully i didn't walk away from that neighborhood when things happened because it was a lower middle class neighborhood and it was at times dangerous I'm so thankful I didn't walk away from that neighborhood thinking black people are scary or dangerous. Instead, I kind of just understood that's just the way things were. Um, I mean, I lived in that neighborhood for five years from age three to eight. And so it was all I knew Um, until we moved away from there. Then I thought, man, yeah, that was maybe not such a safe, you know, incident that happened there. yeah, so we're yeah, my brothers were picked on, but then honestly, and I've seen this that you know, as a person of, of the black or a member of the black community, I have seen where whites have come in, and as long as you can show that you're comfortable, I 
feel very confident you will be welcomed. Now there becomes issues <laughs> when you don't appear comfortable or scared and then that can be seen as offensive and then that can't go another way. Um, and so, I, but I do think that the black community, because we've been on the outside looking in, that they can be very forgiving and welcoming. I, I don't disagree with you there, but you know, what, what you said really hit home about you take a lot of people in a small geographical area and take away their resources. I mean, I think the book about that is called Lord of the Flies. Exactly. <laughs> but it, it's real and people do that. But that's one of the things that, that we would love to see change in foster care system for, for families is to be more comfortable walking in and being more connected with biological families, being more connected with, with people who are just different than you. Because, I mean, in our area, honestly, um, you don't have to go too far to find a lot of really monochromatic folks. But we, we've had kids of all colors and stripes here, and we found that, that really the benefit there is deep. You get to forge some really great relationships with people who have different experiences than you, and it turns out they know things that you don't know. Yeah. And it makes the such a better relationship with somebody. They can teach you something. Right. Exactly. How long were you in foster care before you, or were you even in foster care? Were you, did your parents just adopt you as an infant? So I was only in foster care for three months. Okay. Don't remember anything of it. Yeah. So it was very fortunate that, yeah, I was placed when I was. Yeah. And really never looked back. Uh, so yeah, I wasn't in foster care for long at all. Okay, so f the foster care system wasn't really too much of a part of your, your personal journey. No, I again, it was only three months, and I don't remember anything about it. Now, did you ever have an opportunity or, or take the time to, to recontact your birth family? Yes, yeah, so when I, I started looking when I was in college, um, and that was just such a frustrating process because that was back in the mid-'80s, and it wasn't like I could get on the internet and send an email. I had to write letters back and forth to uh, the Lutheran Social Services in Detroit. Um, and it was either write or call. And back then, too, long a long-distance phone call for a college kid was just an insane amount of money that I didn't have. Um, but every now and then, I would save up money and call Lutheran Social Services in downtown Detroit. And I remember sitting there on the phone and the person who had my file, her name was truly Boykins. And I remember hearing her on the phone leafing through my file. And I was about 20 at this time, 20 years old and thought, man, is this frustrating? This stranger holds more about me than I know. And when I would ask her questions, she would say, I can't answer that because my, my adoption was considered a closed adoption. Um, and so, yeah, at about 20, started looking. That became very frustrating. And so I stopped. And I would start and stop and start and stop, you know, for the next 20 years. Um, and then going out to a football game in 2006, 2009, I was going out with my kids to a high school football game. And earlier that day, I was talking to a fellow adoptee, and he had suggested that I contact this woman. Her name was Cher, and she's what's called an adoption angel. So she links adoptees with birth families. But she uses the Internet, which I'd never used before. And so I'm going out uh, to the football game, 
I give her all the information I know. And within 20 minutes, she found my mother. Yeah. So unfortunately, and that was in 2009, 2003, uh, my mother had passed away. Interestingly, to my knowledge, my mother and, and father, you know, I was the result of an affair between those two. I don't think they had much connection after I was born. And I found out later, my father didn't even know that I was born. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they died within two weeks of each other in 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I did get to meet uh, a sister, a brother, a niece, aunt and uncles. Yeah, that's about it. There's a lot of people that came out of the woodwork when they found out I was around, um, like on Facebook. And But I, a lot of those people, I couldn't even tell you how we're related, quite honestly. Has that added anything to your life to be able to? Yeah, it was, it was great. I remember, you know, meeting my sister. It was Thanksgiving 2009. I met my sister. She came over. My adoptive parents were there. My wife and my kids were there. And I had always said when I was looking, you know, I want three things. I want the chance to tell my adoptive mother that I was okay or show her that I'm okay, that I came out all right. Because I wanted her to be proud of me. The other was, I wanted her to know I wasn't mad at her. Or I didn't hold any resentment against her. And the last thing was, I just wanted to know the truth. Just tell me what it was. Because everybody had, throughout my life, it just told me, well, your mother couldn't take care of you, so she gave you away. And that's never made sense to me. So, yeah, that helped a lot to meet my sister. And then to also see that I would not have fared well in that household. Uh, My mother's husband was at best verbally abusive, probably more than that. And me being the constant reminder that his wife had an affair, yeah, that was not a good environment for me to grow up in. So I was thankful that that sacrifice was made. And I think for me, adoption was the right solution. Um, And my parents got to see that. I think it was important for them. You know, I think they, I think a lot of parents and foster parents grow up thinking, wow, you know, always wondering, was this the right decision? Um, And so it was, it was the healing process for us all, including my parents to see that, that, yeah, this, this was the right decision. Yeah, that's that's one of those questions that I think a lot of of adoptive families, adoptees, adoptee families, um, all the way across the board. Those questions tend to run through the through the whole gamut. We've had um, a couple ladies on here, um, Caroline Rittenauer and um, Lauren Bajorian. I'm probably butchering her last name because it was a mouthful, but uh, but you know, both of them were were ladies who who had a baby and said, I can't take care of this child. This is, um, the one lady was in, in a relationship that, you know, the, the biological father was a really abusive guy. And that was one of the things that, that led her towards adoption and her child was, was placed for adoption. But they, those two both told their story. They had open adoptions and it allowed them that room to be able to still see their kid, talk to them, still have a relationship and have a kid who had a biological mom and who had, you know, their, their adoptive mom. And it's, it's a beautiful relationship. But in 19, 
60, 70, 80, 90, probably 2000 mm. and into 2010. Right. It was, those weren't really things you heard about very often. Yeah. That would have been huge. Um, because you always wonder, like part of our family dynamic was we didn't have these deep conversations about a lot of stuff. So we never really talked about, you know, adoption or race. And so, so I would just kind of sit with that in my head and come up with all these crazy scenarios. Um, so yeah, to have that connection would have been huge. I just wanted to know again, like I said, what was the story? Um, and then, oh, and then to have a connection and to meet all those people would have been really cool. If, um, I can't remember his name now. I just drew a blank. Dr. What's his name <laughs> from, uh, from back to the future, pulled the DeLorean up in your front yard and said, Hey, you have two minutes. What year do you want to go to? And what do you have to say to yourself? What would you do? Um, man, there's so much <laughs> I would do. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people would assume I would say I would go back to when my mother was still alive. But here's the kind of interesting thing with that was I remember I had 20 years to come up with what with any and all scenarios behind why I was given up for adoption. And then I was also I had that 20 years to figure out the possible scenarios if she was alive. It was a chance she could be dead. So I got to really prepare myself for all of that. And I remember when uh, when that search angel, she had sent me uh, an email and it had my mother's obituary and her headstone in it. And part of me was saddened, but part of me was relieved that I wouldn't have to go through that deeply emotional reunion. And I think a lot of adoptees, we just want to know where we come from. And that might not mean we want to have these deep relationships with family, with biological family. Some may, some may not. Um, And for me, it was enough to find out where I came from, what the real story was. Yeah, and I, so yeah, I wouldn't say I'd go back to talk to my mother because I don't know if emotionally I could have handled that. And then I don't know if she would have given me what I needed. And so I may have left even more frustrated and saddened. Um, and I, and I get glimpse of that when you start, you know, like no one really knew about when I was born or, you know, she never said anything about it. And so you just wonder, man, Maybe I didn't want to reunite with her because, you know, like I'm always reminded if you've seen that movie, Antoine Fisher, and it's about this kid in foster care and, you know, his mother has some abuse issues and he finally gets to go and meet her. And when he does, she can't even look at him. She won't even talk to him. And I remember watching that going, man, I wouldn't want that search, my search to end up like that because now I'm worse off than I was before. No, I don't think I've even heard of that movie, but to be fair, I have a house full of kids. Most of what I see is animated. Yeah. No, it's it's a great movie. Denzel Washington's in it. It's a great movie. Really? Yeah. What was the name of that one again? Antoine Fisher. That sounds like something that might be a good family movie for our house. Yeah, and then it it ends with, so so many of us adoptees are so fixated on mother 
And I was too, where I wanted to see my mother, want to talk to her, have a relationship. And, and, and in the movie, Antoine's like that. And so he goes and she doesn't give him close to what he needed. But then he connects with his father's family. And I'm probably spoiling it for you, but the movie ends with him walking into this amazing feast and being welcomed by his father's family. And so I love that movie because it gives you both of, you fear that you're not going to get all the answers, but you hope that you will get that kind of feast that Antoine Fisher had at the end of the movie. And so that's kind of the, the extremes you deal with as an adoptee searching. Yeah. I mean, you don't know what you're going to get sometimes. Uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast for very long at all will have heard me talk about being part of a dad's group. As a matter of fact, that's the, the logo on the hat that I'm wearing today. That's been something that's been a big part of our life. And one of the things I've realized is that deep connection that, that, happens between dad and son over time even our oldest son who biologically is not my son but he's been my son since he was like two and uh he's never known any any different person in his life and we still to this day if he's having a hard time you know he's he's often married now if him and his wife are struggling he's you know he's in a frustrated place my phone will ring and he'll call me and, and we'll sit and have deep conversations mm-hmm. and, and there's a connection that's built there over time so what is it that you would say that, that you would say to your dad if you had a chance? And, and, and how has not having had that connection with a biological dad really affected you? Yes. So, again, so much of me growing up and thinking about biological family, it was so concentrated on my mother. I didn't think a lot about my biological father. Uh, so that's a hard question for me to answer because I didn't have a whole lot of thought about that. And by the time I found him, I knew it it was so much to find him. And I had already, and he was older than my mother. He was 10 years older than my biological mother. So I had become very certain that he more than likely would be dead. Um, and so I didn't really have time to fantasize or think about, well, what would that conversation be like? Um and most of what I mourned from that side of the family was the connection to black culture. Um, yeah. And that's more than any, and that's might sound harsh to say, but more than missing my father, it was that connection to that side of the family. Being a dad has been a big part of my life. And I can only imagine that coming through the, the situation you did, how has it changed who you have been as a dad? Because I know you said you have a, a couple not so little kids these days. So how's that, how's that really influenced the dad that you've become over the years? Well, it's interesting. So when, when I train, I talk about what I call uh, adoptee residue, which is pretty much stuff that kind of sticks to us. And we all, and especially the, the era I came up in, the assumption was don't really put too much energy and thought into the fact that he's no longer with his biological mother or don't really address the issues that may come with adoption because those will just go away. Those were kind of the thoughts coming up when I came up. And so what I try and teach people is, yeah, there's stuff that really sticks to a lot of us that we just simply can't wash off. And the biggest one for me in the biggest way that affected me was in relationships coming up. And it was simply because for whatever reason, my biological mom, mother 
couldn't keep me and chose to give me up because that's what I was told. And so it's really hard not to think there must have been something wrong with me. And that's why she had to give me up. So that's why I always tell parents, foster parents and adoptive parents, you need to tell your kids as much information as you can, because there was a lot of inf- missing information that cho- that caused me to think in a certain way. And if I just had little a little piece of information on certain things, I may not have thought that way. Um, so, and there's been so many books written about this, that yes, yeah, so a big area where us adoptees are affected when it is in relationships and that can be in peer relationships, dating relationships, marriage, or with biological children or kids that you're raising. Um, And so I've been fortunate where we have great kids, but I also know and see that there's part of me that always has this fear that if you go into this, someone's going to reject you or you're going to end up getting hurt. And so it's kind of this, you go in, but not all the way in for fear of, yeah, I mean, you've kind of been taught that, you know, what your closest relationship you ever had disrupted. And so there's always this fear that every other relationship is going to end like that. So how has that affected your relationship with your wife? Because, I mean, don't let my wife know that I said this, even though she's sitting beside me and she's probably going to smack me. But as... As we all know, everybody will tell you that little girls tend to marry somebody that reminds the, reminds them of their father. And little boys end up growing up into men who marry someone who in some way reminds them of their mother. Now, that, that had to really have been kind of a mixed bag for you as as you got old and eventually ended up, um, of course, I'm making the assumption that you guys are married. Are you, are you still married? Are, yes. Did, okay. Six years. Oh, wow. Well, you got some years. Congrats yeah. on that one. So, so it sounds like it sounds like you did something right in that process. So, what what helped you end up in a in a relationship where you could have twenty six years of marriage? It was me growing up with my adoptive parents and seeing, you know, kind of their what an example of what marriage is, and then my wife doing the same. You know, she grew up in a two parent household. I think that helped. Um, And then I was just, I think, very, very fortunate to marry a woman that was very patient. Um, Because I, at that time when I married her, I didn't realize how profoundly impacted I was uh, by adoption or being adopted. Um, And so, yeah, so I think there were things that I did to kind of, and I saw that with all the relationships I had before them, which was pretty much make this thing blow up before it blows up in your face. So I would do stupid things only really to get them before they got me. Um, And I was fortunate that my wife didn't really fall for that and really kind of held me accountable and was just really patient as I was just trying to figure out, you know, (laughs) what I was going through and who I was and who I was becoming. So as you look back across that, how did she support you through those through those moments and, and help you to to see those parts of your past coming coming to fruition in your present. I think she saw who I could be and kind of spoke to that. 
um, yeah, there were times when I just wasn't a, <laughs> a good person, quite honestly. And I think, I think she understood that came from a hurt place and not from a place where I was trying to hurt. Um, and so, yeah, she was just very calm and patient. Uh, and then would hold me accountable too when she needed to, which was important. Um, yeah, and just the right combination of both of those things, I think, really, really helped. It sounds like you married a wise woman. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> You're always supposed to marry up, man. That's yeah. that's the best way to yeah. do it. Exactly, exactly. That's funny. We got we had the opportunity of meeting uh, the one the real uh, Tui from the Blind Side, the mom. Okay. The, the real woman, not Sandra Bullock, but we got to meet her. And when we met her, that was her comment is you outkicked your coverage or you, you married up basically. But yeah, that's, 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 that's amazing that you were able to find that, you know, find, find a woman who could understand that you came from a hurt place mm-hmm. and then be intentional about helping you heal through that. Right. You know, most people don't get that in their lives. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. You know, I think that that speaks to a lot of the, the divorce rate, especially among adoptees, because it's, it's such a, a trouble for for people who've been abandoned in their early years to feel safe and secure in a relationship like that what would you say to to the young man who's who's looking at you know aging out of care soon who's getting ready to go out and try and step into life like the 18 year old version of of you maybe what would you say to them what would be some of your best advice that you've learned over your years since then that you go man i didn't do this right and this will help you a lot So we have, I used to work in foster care. So I was a CASA worker. I would, I would, I had a caseload, write kids on it. And uh, one of the young ladies I met, I think she was 14 or 15 when I met her, uh, adoptee out of Liberia, Africa, and her adoption disrupted. And so we met, uh, and then three or four years later, she aged out of care. And I remember thinking, and her and I still kept in contact. Um, We consider her like our daughter. So my wife knows her. We all get along. And and I thought, man, what a cruel world this is, that we would just tell this young 18-year-old woman, we're done. Good luck. And I thought, man, at 18, there's no way I would have survived. I mean, so the assumption is I don't like she she tried to get a job and keep an apartment, but she couldn't afford it. And I couldn't pay to make that happen. Um, And I just thought, man, this is just a horrible system because I don't know many 18 year olds that could function alone and do well. And so that's why so many adoptees or kids that age out of foster care end up in jail or pregnant in just horrible situations. And so, yeah, man, at eight, an 18 year old kid aging out now, I, you, what you got to do is really hold the County or whoever is in charge of your case of you until before you age out, man, you got to hold them accountable to do what they got to do to help you. And there are some programs that have actually extended beyond that. Um, the thing that saved you know, our daughter was the military and I wasn't a big fan of the military, but man, did she, 
one, I was just so relieved that I didn't have to worry about getting a call in the middle of the night that something horrible had happened to her. And then two, it just gave her stability. And she was, she's always been a really competitive kid. And as long as you put a goal in front of her, man, she'll walk through a wall to get it. And I thought, man, that saved her life. I think it really did. Um, and now she's jumping out of airplanes and she's doing all What branch is she in? Uh, the Army. Army, okay. What does she do in the Army? So they fill uh, vehicles for fueling. They fuel vehicles. That's what she does. But okay. she also, like I said, she does. She jumps out of, uh, you know, those big military cargo planes. The C-130, baby. Yeah, right after, you know, like she sent me a video not too long ago. This huge vehicle that they cram into this big cargo plane. And they let that thing off first. And uh, and then they all jump out after it. And I'm like, man, there's no way. <laughs> no, there's, <laughs> night, there's too. No she showed, yeah, she showed me some videos for parach- parachuting and this guy came in right on top of her. I mean, just missed her. <laughs> uh, you know, God love him. I, I was in the army as well. However, my job involved sitting sitting in a in a small building, and I wasn't jumping out of airplanes. God love yeah. the airborne because I, I sure as heck did never had a desire to step out of any airplane I was ever on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's a great example of somebody who's come out of a of real hard situation and found a way through to to be able to to find a, that niche that that helped her succeed. Yeah, yeah, she's done. Couldn't be more proud of her. Just all that she's done. You know, my 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 oldest son is um. He's actually I'm going down this week. That he's him and his wife are moving back here to to Missouri. But he was stationed at uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. He just just ETS out of the, out of his time in the service down there. But um, to see who he was when he left versus who he is today, man, that's and I know some people have problems with the military, have problems with war, with with politics and all that. And and I'm not even about to jump into all that. But I, I love seeing a young man, a young woman who's, you know, in that young place where they're not ready to be on their own yet and step out into the military and just a few years back, come back as as well, quite frankly, a grown ass man. Yeah, exactly. Right. I wanted to make sure that we talked about uh, your book as well. I know you said you had a book. It is Growing Up Black and White. Is that correct? Yes. All right. And um, and that's your website name as well, isn't it? Yes. So you can go find me at my website there under my name, which is Kevin Hoffman, H-O-F-M-A-N-N.com. Uh, that'll take you to, to the site. But yeah, the book is just about our unusual time growing up. Um. Yeah, as this biracial kid in this white family in this city that is trying to figure out, you know, if the races can get along. Um, And so, yeah, interesting way to grow up. But one of the biggest things I wanted to do when I wrote the book was just create. Create an environment where people could just hear what it was like as a person of color moving through life in the United States. And so it was very important for me to do that. And I knew because of the colorful life that I grew up with that I had to address race. And so I hope, and I think I got it right, but so the plan was just tell all these stories, these coming of age stories where you do all this crazy stuff with your best friend who's this tall white kid that you met in Detroit. And then just kind of 
filter in the lessons that you've learned about race. And hopefully that way it shows one, that the, the, the thought was present someone that people can like, which was me, um, and then get them so involved that they kind of feel what you feel. And so that when I would bring up issues, well, you know, this kid did this to me and I think it's because I'm black, then I thought, okay, people can understand that and relate better to that. And maybe they can come away with a better understanding of the impact of race. And so that's one of the big pushes behind writing the book. And then the other push was, I just wanted to give a guide to families like ours, white families that adopted children of color. And I wanted to just share with them what I had learned about that process and how they may make, may, uh, make things easier for their kids. It's definitely on my list of things I need to go look at because God knows that's something that, that not a lot of people are telling us, telling their stories about it yet. Mm-hmm. Now, now are you on audible? Yeah. So it's, it's on everything. Kendall, Amazon, audible. We just, I just did last year. So that, yeah. Did you read Audible yourself or did you hire a voice actor? No, I did it. Yeah, I thought you did it. Yeah. And I really enjoyed doing it. So awesome. Yeah. I'll, that'll, that'll have to go on my Audible queue. I think I have a couple credits sitting there waiting to, waiting to be used, always looking for something interesting. I drive a lot for a living. So, yeah. So, Audible is, yeah. Yeah. That, that's my jam. I can, I can learn while I drive and that's, that's always great. So, so how long ago did you start writing a book or decide that you wanted to write a book? So it's interesting, especially with everything that's going on in the schools and kids. Um, and I do a lot of work in schools. Um, and I remember coming up that, man, my favorite teacher was Mrs. Scharfenberg. She was our English teacher. And she just encouraged me to write. And that always just stuck with me and made it enjoyable. And so I always had an interest in writing. And so, so, so for a while, I used to write poems creative I was just a creative writer that's what I minored in in college and and always thought okay you know of course I'd like to write a book and then it just occurred to me this is such an unusual experience that most people uh just haven't heard about and so yeah I'd like to share that with with the world um and, and one of the other reasons why I wrote the book too was because I just simply wanted to be heard I wanted to be heard as an adoptee um I wanted to be heard as this person of color. Uh, and we don't often get that. Um, and sometimes in the adoption community, we can be overshadowed by everybody else. And so, yeah, I, and I often joke and say that I think, and I think there's some truth to this, that that community benefits from us perpetually being five years old. And so people kind of are shocked when I say, yeah, you know, adoptees do grow up. Because we always get this picture of just this little kid that needs someone to come and, and save them. Um, and I just think we have so much knowledge to give, you know, the rest of that community. And so, yeah, that was a big push behind it. it was I just wanted someone to hear, you know, my experience. Well, that's great because I think that that's an experience that most people don't have. Just like I mentioned, my my coworker I talked with recently, you know, his, his experience has been different than mine. And I'm certain mine was different than yours because I grew up in rural Missouri and Tennessee and in the the eighties, which wasn't necessarily an amazing time, but it definitely wasn't the sixties in, in Detroit. 
Yeah, and that's probably the biggest frustration I have with race and racism is, you know, simply because you don't have my experience doesn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> and so, yeah, hopefully, yeah, that was one of the points of the book was just, this is my experience. I'm, I'm not imagining it. I'm not lying. This is how I interpret that. And if we could just all come to the understanding that, okay, yeah, he just experiences... And this often happens. You know, you used to play that game in school where you tell a secret to someone and then they whisper it around the room and be totally changed. And a lot of that had to do with, we just think from our experience. And so you can tell me one thing. And if my experience is one way, I might hear something different. And it's the same with our lived experiences. I have lived experiences. And I say this a lot is that I have 53 years of identifying race and racism. And I'm good at it. I can, I understand and see the subtleties of it. And so when I share that with people and they go, no, you got that wrong. No, you're not right. No, you're too sensitive. No, you're pulling the race card. That can be very hurtful because I'm just showing, kind of trying to get this frustration out. Here's one of the best experiences I had when it came to race and racism growing up. Like I said, so we lived in that black neighborhood from five years. At age eight, my dad gets a promotion. We moved two miles away, still in the city limits of Detroit, but now into an all-white neighborhood. I am the Jackie Robinson of that neighborhood. And I am struggling. And I'm trying to figure out this whole thing about race. And I just needed someone to hear me. And so I, my best friend was the kid that lived right across the street, Mike, tall, skinny, white kid. And I remember thinking and spending a lot of energy into for us to be true friends, I got to be able to share some of my frustrations and what I'm going through. But I also kind of knew this could make or break our friendship if I bring this up because I knew it was that volatile of a, of a subject. So I remember just sitting there and one day finally just saying, you know, I'm just going to bring this up. And I simply said to him. You know, the mean lady down the street, she treats me differently. And I think it's because I'm black. And all I wanted him to say was, I just wanted him to hear me. And his response was beautiful. He was like, yeah, I think you're right. Let's go shoot some hoop. And I was like, cool. He heard me. I didn't have to have an end of the world conversation about it. I just wanted someone to hear what I was going through and to hear that I was hurting. And I think if we did a better job of that, when we talk about race and racism, we'd all be so much better off. Don't be so quick to judge somebody else's experience. Amen to that. Amen to that. Now, I know you mentioned that you worked with a lot of kids in schools as well. Mm -hmm. What do you do with the schools? So I'll go in and, and we'll have this conversation about diversity and, and inclusion and what that looks like. And initially when I go into the schools, I tell them, man, we got a tough job. We have to create an environment where the kid with the Black Lives Matter t-shirt and the kid with the red Make America Great Again hat can coexist. And we know those are two extremes. And so how do you do that? How do you allow every kid to be who they are, allow them to believe, vote for, you know, support whoever you want to, and still not kind of have this tension? And so, you know, I, one of my experiences growing up in Detroit was playing basketball in the backyard and we didn't have a whole lot of room to play basketball. So I remember 
one time we're playing good friend of mine, Max Mixon, he's taking the ball out and he's pinned. I mean, he's probably got 18 inches to get the ball in and I'm right up on him to prevent him from getting the ball in. And I remember him yelling, give me three feet. I didn't know what that was. I'd never heard that before. And me and Mike was on my team, my best friend. And I looked at Mike and I'm like, what's he talking about? And he yelled it again. And I still didn't. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the third time he yelled it and then he pulled the ball back and just threw it at my stomach. And then he explained that when I when I yell, give me three feet, that means you got to back up three feet to allow me to get the ball in. Or this is the consequence that will come from that. And so I remember thinking about that going, man, what if we just gave each other three feet? Just give me three feet to be who I want to be. Just give me three feet to vote for who I want to, spend my money how I want to, worship who I want to, love who I want to. And that doesn't mean my three feet has to impact your three feet. You can do all that within your three feet. And so the big push with schools and organizations is we got to create this environment where everyone can be who they are in their own three feet. And it's not going to impact each other. And one of the big lessons we tell in schools is, really, if you don't have a relationship with someone, and I got this from growing up in church, which is you can't minister to someone you don't have a relationship with. So why are you trying to have these deep racial conversations with someone you don't know, or really someone whose opinion you could care less about? That's the trap we all get into when we click on Facebook and someone says something, you know, to the extreme of how we believe. And then we've got to get into these big fights. And I'm just like, I know it's tempting, but don't do it. Because if you're that extreme, you're never going to bring that person over to your side. So don't waste your time. That's beautiful. I love that idea of give me three feet because, man, that that keeps Facebook away from me for the most part. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And what we teach the kids, too, is if you become so overwhelmed because you feel like you're not getting that, then it's a safe way to just say, you know, I just need three feet. And everyone knows what that means. I just need a break. Just like, give me a minute to, to inhale and exhale. I love that. I love that. Yeah. You got to have some room to be you and, and don't worry. Me being me is not going to, uh, yeah, not gonna not take away your ability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, there's, a, there's a reason why if you go back and look at my Facebook post for a lot of years, you'll see a whole lot of non-political stuff on there. It just doesn't seem to be yeah, useful exactly. to have that conversation in that space. Yeah. You know, and I find that even in my personal life, you know, I know a lot of guys that I work with have some real assumptions about what my personal political beliefs are. Mm-hmm. And most mm-hmm. of them are pretty dead wrong because I just don't discuss them very often. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. And even there, they just assume that I, I, I don't discuss it because I disagree with them. Yeah. And the truth is, is sometimes I just, we just need some room, man. Just let me be me, you be you, and we'll get along just fine. I think that's kind of the founding principles of this country Yeah, is that we get to do us and it's all good, man. You you and I might not agree on who we should vote for. I guarantee you, we could have a political discussion about something where you and I would not line up on and that's okay. You know, and that goes across all of it, you know, across the, across the lines of, of race or whether or not you know you're a biological kid or adopter, whether or not somebody believes it, this or that should happen, but man, it's just all about be you. Yeah, and don't worry that that it's going to affect me a whole lot because it's it's not, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. 
So I love that. I love that, man. Well, it sounds like, you know, even though you came from a beginning that caused some some trauma and some difficulty throughout your life, you've really grown into a man who has a good heart, who's willing to go out and try and help kids and promote a positive message and lead the world a better way than it was when you found it. Yeah, I think, you know, I just came to this conclusion not too long ago, which was, you know, there's this burning desire in me because I'm made up of my black father and white mother to find a way to reconcile these races and find a way where, yeah, like Rodney King, you said, where we can all just get along. Yeah. And so that's been kind of my mission. Um, yeah. is to, you know, make the, yeah. To make my biological mother proud, my adoptive mother proud and just, yeah. Somehow help in this, this struggle that we're all going through right now. Well, man, it sounds like you're helping a lot of kids and a lot of adults as well, because even, and this is because primarily we teach or we take care of, we help young kids in my home, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we're not changing the hearts and minds of adults that'll be around here 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Right. Exactly. And that's what we're doing. We're we're changing the world in our own way. And I'm glad to see you changing the world in in your way as well. Hey, man, I appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Is there anywhere where you'd like people to be able to find you on social media or on the Internet somewhere? Yeah, so my social media handles are the same. It's Kev Inclusion. So it's K-E-V-I-N, Inclusion, C-L-U-S-I-O-N. Uh, yeah, so you'll find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me under Growing Up Black and White. There's a page for that. Well, we'll make sure we get all those links put in there. And I'm, it's great that you came by and shared your story today and helped some other people see the other side of, of the world. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to find Kevin on his social media accounts or ours as well, check out the podcast notes. It'll all be in there. And if you'd like to have your story highlighted on our show, please contact us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. We'd love to talk to you. And as always, 